Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Hey, Jonathan Allen is in the on-deck circle along with Amy Parnes. He has written this bestseller, Shattered. Inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign, it's getting tremendous attention. As a matter of fact, I I just saw this morning uh, Jeff Stein writing at Vox. It does not take more than a few pages for journalists John Allen and Amy Parnes to arrive at what amounts to their thesis in Shattered. Inside Hillary Clinton's doomed 2016 campaign, a new tell-all book built off of years of reporting on the trail... Uh, The thesis rests on two arguments that are fundamentally in tension. One is that the allegedly best and brightest of Clinton's campaign fell short because they failed at marketing an otherwise winning candidate that unforced strategic blunders, factional infighting and boneheaded investments torpedoed a Democratic nominee who in the hands of some better staff would have swept into the White House. And then this review says it's also the least meaningful part of the book. The second main argument Shattered makes is that Clinton herself was a flawed candidate whom no candidate team could have saved. Hmm. 
Which of those two is it? Or maybe both. This is John Allen. Hey, John, congratulations, first of all. You're, you're knocking them dead with, uh, with, I'm sure, sales, but certainly with reaction and reviews. I think there was such a hunger for someone who was competent to start telling us the story. Uh, th- well, first, thank you very much. Um, I'm glad to be back on with you uh, again um, and, uh, and glad to talk with your audience. Um, yeah, I, I think we, uh, we've been very lucky, very fortunate in terms of the timing. I think this is a good time uh, for, for people to start making those assessments of what happened, what just, just what happened last year, uh, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, independents. I think there's a lot in this book that, uh, in the way of lessons about politics um, and, you know, Definitely, my co-author and I, Amy Parnes, uh, worked very, very hard to pull back the curtain on what was going on in the Clinton campaign and try to bring people into the room where the decisions were being made. Um, and and I, I, I hope and, and believe that the, the critical acclaim that we've gotten and that the sales are representative that we that we hit the mark there. Hey, talk to me. I, I want to get into some of what is revealed in Shattered, but talk to me about process. You had written, the two of you had written about Hillary before. So you decide you want to write this book. How important was it that you be the first out of the gate? Because I anticipate there will be a whole slew of 2016 books. How were you able to guarantee, if at all, that you would be the first serious book to look at the campaign? I think the key was uh, that it's sort of the way we went about this, which was uh, we knew that folks were not going to talk to us honestly about what was happening before the campaign ended uh, if if uh, if they thought there was a possibility that what we were writing was going to come out before the campaign and affect it. And yet we felt like if we waited until after the, the end of the campaign, uh, we would probably run into a whole lot of spin. We wouldn't be able to go back to people and say, well, that's not what you said in May. That's not what you said in July. Um, you know, so we needed to have those like early markers, those early conversations to find out what was going on during the primaries and uh, how decisions were being made as as they were being made so that we could go back later and say, OK, well, this one worked out. This one didn't work out. Uh, and in order to do that, we, we basically had to say we're not going to publish anything before the election. We had to start reporting uh, very early. You know, we started with this book in, in late 2014 in terms of the reporting of it, uh, even before she got into the in, into the race. And then we guaranteed anonymity to all of our sources because we felt that uh, anybody who was speaking on the record about what happened inside this campaign would very naturally, because the Clintons value loyalty so much, and that's not terribly unusual for politicians, but they tend to uh, punish people who are disloyal. Um, you know, because of that, we felt like people felt that they had to attach their names. They either wouldn't say anything to us, or what they what, what they said would be whitewashed to uh, impress the Clintons or keep their standing there. So it was a lot of factors, uh, but because we were started, we started to report so early. Uh, that's why we were able to to get a book out so fast after the election. And, uh, we also made the decision early on to not to not, you know, I think both of us thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, but we didn't write it uh, as we were going through the process as though she were going to win. We just wrote it as though, you know, as things were have as we were learning things, just kind of wrote it as straight as possible. So were you looking over lost, your shoulder? Were you looking over your up. shoulder the whole time wondering, you know, uh oh, what are Halpern and Heilman doing and and others that I'm sure you're aware of who are in the pipeline? Um, not, not really. I mean, we, we sort of felt like we had, because we had written a, a previous book about Secretary Clinton, we felt like we had, uh, you know, better sourcing and better access than a lot of other people did. We knew we, because of the way we'd gone about it, we were going to be able to get out pretty fast. And also because, uh, as I was saying before, we didn't have to go back and rip up chapters. So 
uh, it wasn't like we were like, oh, my God, she lost. We've got to, like, figure out how to, like, come up with some storyline here. Um, we had all that reporting done. We had a lot of the writing done. Uh, and it was, it was a crash to get it out. But, you know, I think this is a, uh, an important story for folks who, who just want to know what happened and, and really want to get inside the details. And uh, we didn't think too much about other folks. And, in fact, uh, some, of, some of the folks you mentioned I, I don't think are coming out with their books for, you know, another year or so. So, uh, you know, we would have had more time. Secretary Clinton herself is writing a book uh, due for later this year. So, Hey, John, uh, there's, know, nothing, this, there's this, nothing unique about politicians, especially at this level, having competing power circles within their coterie, for lack of a better word. But the Clintons take it to a whole new level, right? You've, you've got so many different stratifications of, of people around her and around him, and getting them all on the same page is really a tough, tough job. Right, you're trying to organize a several thousand car funeral, right? I mean, people. Right, that's about, a great way to put it. Have a one car. It's just it's un, it's unbelievable, and you're trying to get them all through the traffic lights at the right time, and you know, I mean, it's just uh, you've got the Hillary Clinton campaign, you've got the Hillary Clinton uh, set of advisors from the State Department, the Clinton State uh, advisors from her Senate days, from her State Department days. You've got the Clinton Foundation folks. You've got Bill Clinton's advisors from all of his previous stops. Uh, you, you know, at some point they incorporate the Democratic National Committee. Uh, there are all these entities that have like sort of a say in what's going on and nobody's really running them. Uh, and to the extent that anyone is, it's Hillary Clinton. And she is somewhat absent from from those people because she's out on the campaign, you know, out on the trail running a campaign and, and you know, appearing. I mean, there's you need to have somebody who can manage all of these pieces. And and it's really uh, an impossible task. The portrait that you paint of of Robbie Mook in Brooklyn being so data driven, so analytical, relying on truly relying on, I'll say, political science could not be more removed from the organic nature of the Trump juggernaut. You're absolutely right. I mean, Donald Trump had three campaign managers, and uh, at least two of them had a pretty good feel for what was going on in the country in terms of Corey Lewandowski and Steve Bannon. I can't speak as much to Paul Manafort. He was brought in more to, to sort of manage around the convention, which is uh, by its very nature and sort of insider exercise. Um, you know, Mook, Mook had worked on the, uh, uh, and it's pronounced Mook, but I often say Mook, so I apologize to him for that. Uh, Mook had worked on the Obama campaign in 2012 and at the end of 2008 after he had worked on the uh, Clinton campaign. And the Obama campaign was credited for uh, – their data team was credited for putting the president across the finish line. Uh, the truth is they had a really good candidate who was able to persuade people. Um, and he was able to, to get Democratic votes, to unite the Democratic Party, to bring some independents in and even bring some Republicans in. And so the data always looked pretty good on the Obama campaigns. Uh, he didn't win because of the data. The data, you know, to some degree looked good because he won. And, and I think it was helpful to him. Hillary Clinton wanted to run a campaign like Obama that that really was on the cutting edge of technology and, and the use of data. Um, but what what she was what she tended to do was focus because of Mook and because she wanted to do that. And he did this. She focused on that so much. Uh, it was to the exclusion of the basic idea that you can go out and persuade people to vote for you and that you can change the numbers that you're seeing when when you don't like them, if you're good at persuasion. Something Bill Clinton really tried to do in this campaign and was as he was rebuffed by the uh, 
by the Brain Trust in Brooklyn. Well, I'm I'm glad. Okay, I'm glad you bring him up because, and I, I read this aloud when we were together on CNN, but I'll do it again now. There's this vignette in the book where you're talking about how Bill Clinton is is not as data driven. He's more instinctual, and and he is uh, having this debate with Robbie Mook. And you write, Mook's response was always a variation on the same analysis. The data run counter to your anecdotes. Bill liked data, but he believed it was insufficient. To him, politics wasn't just about finding people who agreed with you and getting them to the polls. He felt that it was important to talk to voters individually and get a real sense of what they were feeling. He also believed that a candidate could persuade voters with the right argument and in pursuit of that, the on-the-ground feel for how hopes and fears were motivating voters were invaluable. In the end, Mook won out. Is that fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. Uh, Mook won that argument, you know, nine times out of ten. I think I think Bill Clinton was able to find his way out to some places that uh, the campaign wouldn't have necessarily sent him. There were there were times when he he was able to to you know he was pretty clever. At, uh, calling friends in other states and saying, "Hey, is there something I could show up at in a good place that you know isn't necessarily where the campaign would send me?" But there, there are several scenes in this book where you where you really get the sense of how Bill Clinton thinks about uh, approaching people who don't agree with you, and and it is to acknowledge what they're feeling. Um, you know the the old the old joke about him, "I feel your pain." Um, you know it, it's true. He's somebody who goes out and. He understands that, that not everybody's going to agree with him. He's going to, he understands that people are angry about a variety of things and, and sometimes it's the candidate he wants. And he, his instinct in that situation is to acknowledge what people are feeling. Uh, we see it. There's a, a meeting never before uh, revealed this, this, uh, before this book uh, that not, nobody's really talked about since the book came out. But uh, she, Hillary Clinton's in St. Louis. Uh, I'm sorry, going to St. Louis. She's in Peoria, Illinois. Bill Clinton's playing like rolls onto the same tarmac. Uh, he gets onto her plane. She's about to give a speech. Uh, there's a big, big set of industrial states coming up on the primary calendar. She seems a little bit lost in what she's saying to, to you know, working class white voters. Bill hops up onto the plane. He's got a big smile on his face. He says, "You know what we're going to do? We're going to we're going to build this wall for Trump, and then we're going to put some slot machines next to it. We're going to use the proceeds to to let kids go to college for free." And he's like, kind of making fun of of what Trump's promises are, and at the same time saying to her, "You know, like." There's a way to to message that people can understand what you're trying to say uh, that is that is simpler than all the stuff you're going through. Uh, but it begins with acknowledging what they want. Um, and I, I think it's a really poignant scene. She goes out the next day to, to St. Louis. Her speech is much more than it typically was sort of an acknowledgement of people being angry. She said, you're right to be angry. You're, you're right to have these fears. Um, and, and that's not the kind of thing you, you usually hear from her. So I think Bill Clinton, um, you know, comes out of this looking pretty good. Do you know one way or the other whether she has read it? I don't yet. Uh, and I know that uh, that there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of discussion and uh, uh, finger pointing in terms of who was responsible for which quote that ends up in your book. I have a final question, and that is, I, and we're not giving it all away because so much has already been written about Shattered. But at the end of the campaign, you've got President Obama on the line with her. And his White House on the line with her, encouraging her to throw in the towel. Right. Her team was not ready to do that. And by her team not being ready to do that, that means she wasn't quite ready to do that. The excuse that she and her team used was that uh, she still needed to prepare like a big concession speech for the next day. Uh, But really, they were trying to figure out if the votes were going to change. 
uh, in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, whether there would be votes that were found, whether it would be uh, put significant pressure on her, including President Obama directly to her, uh, to concede to Trump and, and make clear that there was going to be a transfer of power. Uh, in that moment, when it became clear to the White House that uh, she was going to and her interests diverged. Hers were to continue dragging it out to see if there was a change. His interest was in supporting what he'd been saying all along, which is that, uh, you know, in a democracy, you've got to have this smooth transfer of power. And the last thing he wanted was a, a big circus lasting weeks or months with recounts. Um, Am know, I supposed she, she to interpret what she says request. as an apology? I'm sorry? Am I supposed to interpret what she says to him as an apology? Yeah, I think it's I think it's it is. Uh, so what she says to him after that set of calls and after she's conceded to Donald Trump, she talks to the president again and she says, Mr. President, I'm sorry. And I think that's the moment where it hits her. She's let herself down. She's let her party down. She believes she's let the country down because she thinks Donald Trump is, is not fit to be president. Uh, and she certainly believes she's let Barack Obama down uh, so much at stake in this election in terms of his legacy. Uh, I think, you know, I think she was just defeated. Uh, and, and it is, I think, impossible to read through this book and get to that point and not feel some level of, of human sympathy for her, no matter how you feel about her otherwise. Hey, John, congratulations. Continued success. I'm, I'm really thrilled that it's, it's doing so well for you. Well, thank you for all the help, Michael. That's Jonathan Allen, who with Amy Parnes wrote Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 
because you'll get 50% off. That's code SMIRCONISH50 at factormeals.com slash SMIRCONISH50. Get your 50% off. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Newsflash, you can lose weight like a celebrity without being a celebrity. New Glucotrim from GNC delivers serious results with a proven formula that features ingredients derived from nature, like berberine. And the best part? You don't need a crazy expensive prescription. Glucotrim works with your body to support healthy blood sugar and protect lean muscle mass, unlike other products out there. And did I mention it's caffeine-free? So if you want real results, get on that celebrity weight loss level with New Glucotrim. Get it at GNC. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. It's Jonathan Allen, who with Amy Parnes wrote Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Interesting that you mentioned President Obama at the on Election Day, because, of course, yesterday was his first public appearance since Election Day. Guy, guy looks good, doesn't yeah, he? since he left the looks presidency. Re- looks rested and happy. He looks rested and happy and um, the same, I, I mean, I guess is what you would say. You didn't, know, just, for those who don't know, didn't say a word about Trump. Did not. He spoke at the University of Chicago to, I'm quoting the Chicago Tribune, hundreds of young people at the Logan Center for the Arts at the University of Chicago campus, led a discussion on civic engagement with student leaders, young people. Um, at, at one point, and I, I pulled this quote just for you, uh, he talked about gerrymandering. The one thing that I'm absolutely convinced of is that, yes, we confront a whole range of challenges from economic inequality and lack of opportunity to uh, a criminal justice system that uh, too often is is skewed in in, in ways that uh, are unproductive to climate change to uh, issues uh, related to violence. All those problems are serious, they're daunting, but they're not insoluble. What is preventing us from tackling them and making more progress really has to do with our politics and our civic life. It has to do with the fact that because of things like political gerrymandering, uh, our parties have moved further and further apart, and it's harder and harder to find common ground. Well, of course I agree with that. I also agree with comments that he made about the siloed nature of where we go for our media. Uh, The second part, though, of the gerrymandering conversation is certainly to acknowledge the self-gerrymandering that is going on out there. There's a case from Wisconsin, some other cases, but the primary case, and I think they'll be consolidated, is from Wisconsin, that will be argued in front of the Supreme Court of the United States probably in the fall uh, on gerrymandering. And it's it's going to address this issue as to I mean, it's illegal to draw boundary lines for racial or ethnic reasons. Is it also in violation of uh, the Constitution to say that you can't draw them for political reasons? And and that is finally going to get its day. I think, in front of the Supreme Court come the, the fall. But the president made a lot. You know, I'll tell you a funny thing. I was watching the president yesterday out of the corner of my eye while I was doing some writing. 
Uh, and I was interested to see how does he look, how does he sound, and, and what's the whole vibe at the University of Chicago. And I was also monitoring social media. And the first burst of social media that I was following were people who were saying, oh, my God, he's, he's back, and I, I wish I could have him again, and can I have eight more years of Obama and compare him to what's going on in the White House now? It's, it's, it's a blank show playing itself out, and my, you know what a relief it is to, to see him back, if only for a, a short set of remarks. And then, and then it flipped and I saw people immediately, you know, resorting to the, their old positions. Either they loved him or hated him. And now it was, oh, he's back. He's the reason we're in this position. And and, you know and like, that tells no, me? no views seem to have changed. Yeah, but it's interesting because that tells me that you do not follow all people of one stripe on social media. Oh, I certainly don't. <laughs> so kudos no, to I, you. I, because I think some people, when they see that, will only see one of those or the other. Do you know what I'm saying? You see, it's a great observation because I'm sure that those who are siloed were looking at it all one way or all the other on yeah. the reemergence uh, of Barack Obama. But this is also an explanation as to the Washington Post <clears throat> ABC News poll that I made passing reference to yesterday where 96 percent of trump voters say if they had it to do over again they would vote exactly the same way by the way 85 percent of hillary's voters say they would voted for her i i still don't understand why there's been more of a decline what's hillary done since the election why would it's not a huge percentage i don't want to make too much over this but why would more hillary voters then Trump voters say that if they had it to do over again, they would do something differently. I mean, whomever is the president, you know, is going to please and displease people. You would think that if any of them had frozen the moment in time, it would have been Hillary, that she would be the one with 96 percent of her audience saying, if I had it to do over again, of course, I'd vote for her. But it's not. It's 85 percent are going to vote again for her. Ninety six percent are going to vote again for him. But the reemergence of Barack Obama yesterday and the partisan reaction that it drew. Here's here's something else I wonder, because over time, um, I'm I'm really long winded. Okay, I've got a point I want to make, but I'll, I'll just say this and then we'll open the phone lines again. Are you making the when, point now? Or are you I'm going to say it, it right now, oh, right but I'm going to say it quickly. All right, here you go. When Papa Bush, Bush 41, was in the hospital recently, in fact, he might still be in the hospital, I posted an old photograph of the two of us together when I worked for him in a very junior capacity back in the 1980s. I have hair. I have my own. My, my, my only sport coat is on my back at the time. I wish I had the tie. I can't find the tie. But I got all of these people posting at my Facebook page, making nice comments about Bush 41. Right. Many of them saying I was not a fan then, but he's won me over. Here's a question for you. Will there be any shift with regard to the way in which people look at Barack Obama? over time or is that in cement you know those who are for him are going to be for him those who are against him are just never going to open their minds to a to a different way of looking at him i fear it's the latter based on what i saw in that re- i mean look it's only been 100 days but based on what i saw in that reaction to his comments i thought he said some great things but of course i love what you just played about gerrymandering 
Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Placing a trade shouldn't be complicated. It should be smooth as butter. The Fidelity app makes investing easy with zero commission U.S. stock and ETF trades, no account minimums, and fractional shares trading. Fidelity, where nothing comes between you and the trade. That's smooth. Download our app free from the App Store or Google Play. Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. No account minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.